the It's the Code St. Luke telephone broadcasting service for Thursday, June 18, 2020. On today's episode, our TV and movie librarian, Stephen Tomlinson, will be discussing the operatic tenor, Luciano Pavarotti. Nick Burgess is back with Broadway Happy Hour. On this date in history, on June 18, 1940, two incredible speeches, two historic speeches. Um, The first was from General Charles de Gaulle, who had arrived in London following the fall of France. And on June 18, he delivered over BBC Airwaves what came to be called L'Appel du 18 Juin, the appeal of 18 June, which was broadcast to France via the BBC. Uh, And it was a speech in which he rallied up resistance, the French resistance, against the Nazis who had just taken over his country. Uh, De Gaulle said that the war was not over yet, and he wanted anybody who could to help the nascent free French movement. We're going to play part of his speech. We're also going to play uh, a part of the speech of Winston Churchill, who on the same day rose in the House of Commons and gave his famous, this was their finest hour speech. So here's General De Gaulle, followed by Prime Minister Winston Churchill, June 18. 1940. L'honneur, le bon sens, l'intérêt supérieur de la patrie commande à tous les Français libres de continuer le combat là où ils seront et comme ils pourront. Il est par conséquent nécessaire de grouper partout où cela se peut une force française aussi grande que possible. J'invite tous les Français qui veulent rester libres à m'écouter et à me suivre. Vive la France, libre, dans l'honneur et dans l'indépendance. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Here is Stephen Tomlinson discussing operatic tenor, Luciano Pavarotti. From the Times Online comes the following. And if I may say so, please forgive me in advance for any of the inevitable mispronunciations that I'm going to make along the way. Thank you. With his uniquely thrilling voice and exceptionally endearing personality, the great tenor touched an audience of millions worldwide. It was often said that he was the most popular opera singer since the legendary Caruso. 
Both of these Italian tenors had an instantly recognizable vocal timbre. Pavarotti's brightly gleaming silver, his predecessors richly bronze. Pavarotti also had in common with his great predecessor an insatiable love of performing, an expansive and outgoing nature, and above all, the ability to make each person in any audience believe he was singing to them alone. Pavarotti was born on October 12, 1935. Throughout his life, he remained intensely loyal to his birthplace, Modena. His father, a baker, possessed an impressive tenor voice that was heard in his church choir. Pavarotti often paid tribute to his father and the early encouragement he was given in modest surroundings. One of his earliest excursions outside Italy was to perform as a member of Modena's Rossini Choir in the 1955 International Singing Competition at Langothlin in North Wales, where it won first prize. The young tenor studied under Arrigo Pola and Ettore Campo Galliani. Later was also the teacher of Pavarotti's fellow Modenese, Mirella Freni, who was later to partner him on stage many times. In 1961, Pavarotti made his professional debut at Reggio Emilia as Rodolfo in La Boheme. It was soon to become a favorite role of Pavarotti's. Rodolfo also introduced his artistry to Covent Garden two years later. Giuseppe Di Stefano was scheduled to sing La Boheme, but Joan Ingpen, the garden's casting director, had hired Pavarotti as a cover, with the promise that he would be given a full debut in the final performance. Not the most reliable of tenors, Di Stefano withdrew halfway through his second Rodolfo, and Pavarotti took over the role to great acclaim. This role suited him admirably, with a long schoolboyish scarf around his neck, Pavarotti, less bulky in those days, passed easily for a young poet and offered a ringing high C in his area. Audiences at Glyndebourne saw him the next year in a very different role, Idamante, proving that he could sing Mozart as well as popular Italian opera. Some of Pavarotti's critics claimed that he was not a musician on the level of Placido Domingo, and that his ability, and that his ability to read a score was limited. He admitted that in the early days he learnt several roles by ear, his career was never especially varied stylistically, but his repertoire was chosen with great care. This helped immeasurably in preserving his instrument over more than four decades. He built up his infallible technical security from a strong foundation of bel canto. Pavarotti sang Bellini and Donizetti, plus Verdi's lighter roles and Puccini's Rodolfo, for years before moving on to heavier fare. Initially Tosca and Torrendo, eventually La Gioconda, La Gioconda, Il Travatore, Aida, and the other Rodolfo in Louisa Miller, an opera that showed him to particular advantage. Perhaps it was Domingo's supremacy as Otello that dissuaded Pavarotti from singing that mighty role until 1991, and then only in concert. Even after taking on dramatic material, he was always able to keep his voice flexible by returning to one of his lightest roles, 
Nemorino in Le Lissir d'Amor. A hugely important year for Pavarotti was 1965, which included his first appearance at La Scala in La Boheme. His American debut was at Gardo in Lucia di La Mermore, which would become one of his most affecting portrayals at Greater Miami Opera with Joan Sutherland in the title role, and most important for his artistic development, a tour of Australia in a company put together by the Sutherland with her husband, the conductor Richard Boning. Pavarotti noted years later that, at this early stage of his own career, observing and working with a technically incomparable Sutherland was hugely important for him. For their part, the Bonings found in Pavarotti the ideal tenor for much of their repertoire. Uh, the repertoire they were performing in the Opera House and in Decca recordings. With their encouragement, Pavarotti took on some of the most demanding bel canto roles. Opposite Sutherland, he was to earn tremendous acclaim in such roles as Edgardo, Arturo in I Puritani, Elvino in La Sonambula, and Orombello in Beatrice di Tanda. This last role only in the recording studio for his first complete opera for Decca. Another bel canto opera with Sutherland provided Pavarotti with the Superstar is born moment of his career, and that is Le Fille de Regiment at uh, Covent Garden in 1966. The tenor cavorted delightfully through the role of Tonio, stopping the show with the nine high C's of his first aria, as well as with exquisite legato phrasing of his second. In short order, Pavarotti conquered the big U.S. theaters, including the Metropolitan Opera where he first appeared in 1968. As with most of his debuts in important international houses, the role was Puccini's Rodolfo. The tenor quickly became a darling of the New York public, and many new Met productions were staged especially for him, among them Il Trovatore, La Favorita, and Ernani. He reprised his success in Fille de Regiment with uh, Sutherland in 1972, and the pair, joined by Cheryl Milnes and James Morris, sang gloriously in the house's first staging of Bellini's E Puritani in 45 years. This was in 1976. Having been Glenborn's Idemonte back in 1964, Pavarotti took the role of that character's father, the title hero of Idomeneo in 1982 in the company's first production of Mozart's opera. The tenor's relationship with Lyric Opera of Chicago began in 1973 with yet another superb portrayal of Rodolfo. Appearances in his other signature parts followed Edgardo, Cavaradossi in Tosca, Nemorino, the Duke of Mantua in Rigoletto, Riccardo in Undalo uh, in Mascara, and also one of the heaviest roles he sang on stage. Radames and Aida. Also heard at the Met, San Francisco Opera and La Scala. Over eight seasons in Chicago, however, there were also 26 canceled performances out of 41 in total. Uh, this was a problem. The company's general director, artist Kranich, was unwilling to continue disappointing her subscribers. And in 1989, while making clear that she retained her affection 
For uh, Luciano, Cranach made public her decision that lyric opera would not uh, any longer hire Pavarotti. The cancellations were nothing new. They had already occurred during the 1980s in Australia and at Covent Garden, distressing audiences and theater officials. Pavarotti's withdrawal from Tosca at the Garden in 1983 produced an outcry, not least because the reason given was a dust allergy, backed up by a doctor's certificate of inordinate length. This caused a rift between Pavarotti and uh, the ROH uh, Covent Garden that was to last for some time. By the mid-1980s, Pavarotti was devoting considerable time to concerts, many of which were sung in stadiums and arenas with orchestras all over the world. Cynics declared that he was undertaking these appearances because the rehearsal time was minimal and the fees high. There can be little doubt that he thrived on the excitement of appearing live before audiences that on many occasions exceeded 100,000. On one rain-soaked July night in 1990 in Hyde Park, London's traffic stopped and the audience, though drenched, stayed in their seats. Only stars of the magnitude of Madonna and Michael Jackson could have cast a similar spell. In 1992, Pavarotti showed a new concern when, after stopping midway through a Sheffield concert because of a severe cold, he promised to return in good voice. This he did six weeks later at reduced prices. Also during the 1990s, Pavarotti put his fame to good use in staging six concerts entitled Pavarotti and Friends, raising money for the children of Bosnia, Liberia, Cambodia, and Tibet. These performances brought together such performers as varied as John Bon Jovi, The Coors, Stevie Wonder, and Andreas Vollenweider. Pavarotti's open-air solo concerts of popular areas and songs were not unprecedented. UC uh, Borling had played to audiences of thousands in his native Sweden, and earlier John McCormick had done the same worldwide. The new elements were the avalanche of publicity and the recordings permanently documenting many of the performances. Herbert Breslin, the American manager and public relations representative for many celebrated classical artists, helped to create and maintain the image of Pavarotti as the poor country boy who made good with a golden voice. Breslin also negotiated fees beyond those of the tenor's rivals, beginning at $20,000, moving to $50,000, then on to $100,000 and beyond. In 1990, just before the World Cup finals in Rome, Placido Domingo, uh, Jose Carreras, and the conductor Zubin Mehta joined Pavarotti for a concert at the Baths of Caracalla. It was presented to raise funds for the foundation that Carreras, a leukemia, leukemia survivor, had established to combat the disease. Decca's recording of the performance sold more than 10 million copies. The wild enthusiasm accorded the three tenors, as, as they soon became known, in their initial venture in Rome, inspired them to reunite periodically in other venues over the years. Their concerts included three held during subsequent World Cups in Los Angeles in 1994, 
Paris in 1998, and Yokohama in 2002. Other recordings were released, and the gains for each tenor in world popularity were enormous. Pavarotti's activities during his years of greatest fame included master classes throughout the world. His intense interest in the development of young artists prompted him to start an international vocal competition, named for him and based in Philadelphia. Many competition winners were invited to perform opposite Pavarotti in concerts and opera productions worldwide. In later years, his singing retained many of the qualities that brought him renown. The superbly clear timbre, the spectacular secure upper register, the exquisite Italian diction. Pavarotti also continued to fit precisely the popular image of the Italian tenor, playing up um, to the image that he loved music, women, wine, football, horses, and pasta. Physically, he resembled a tenor of an almost Victorian kind, especially on the concert platform. The huge white handkerchief to mop his brow and the watch in the watch chain in his waistcoat were all part of the persona. There was also his girth, which caused him great difficulties in the final years of his operatic career. When productions had to be altered to accommodate his to accommodate his increasing inability to move easily on the stage. Pavarotti's financial success brought him unwelcome headlines in 1999, when it was stated in a finance ministry, ministry report that he owed the Italian tax authorities about 1.5 million pounds. He argued that his main residence was in Monaco, but magistrates rejected his appeal. Pavarotti agreed to pay the government 24 billion lira, uh, which is about 7.5 million pounds in back taxes, and penalties on civil tax evasion charges as well. Um, the great tenor had planned to retire from performing by his 70th birthday. He sang his final Met performance, Tosca, in March 2004, beginning an international tour of farewell appearances. Health problems disrupted his concert schedule, initially with complications after a back operation. In July 2006, he was found to have pancreatic cancer, which required immediate surgery. He announced that he would reschedule concerts in Britain, Finland, Norway, Austria, Switzerland, and Portugal for 2007. Despite the cancellations and other setbacks in Pavarotti's later career, a huge public worldwide maintained its devotion to him. His popularity will surely endure for many decades, thanks largely to a, rem a remarkable legacy of recordings. Lovers of fine singing are fortunate that the tenor documented virtually his entire repertoire, whether in commercial releases or pirated performances. The shining voice of his youthful prime can be heard in his initial operatic recital desk disc for Decca, one of the first of the more than 40 complete operas in his discography, Mascagna's L'Amico Fritz is early evidence of the magic that could ensue when Pavarotti performed opposite his lifelong friend, Merara Freni. The two, in fact, recorded seven other operas together, including a glorious La Boheme under Carian. 
Another thrilling partnership between Pavarotti and Sutherland can be relished in no fewer than 13 operas recorded for Decca, ranging in character, from Les Lesires d'Amour to Torrando. The confident style and sheer effortlessness of Pavarotti's singing yields especially memorable results in Donizetti roles, as well as in Verdi's in Bello in Mascara and Rigoletto. The many recitals and live concerts give a taste of Pavarotti's persuasive way with a vast array of Italian arias and songs. There are seemingly innumerable performances of his Nessun Dorma from Torrendo, which became something of a signature piece for him. His version of it became the theme song of the BBC TV coverage of the 1990 FIFA World Cup in Italy. Pavarotti's unique popularity worldwide ensured broad video documentation of his career, although perhaps best forgotten is his starring role in a 19, 1981 Hollywood film called Yes, Giorgio. Despite much excellence in the concerts and recitals that figure prominently in his filmography, the performance that perhaps remains most indelibly in the memory is La Boheme, captured live at the Metropolitan Opera in 1977. Here, Pavarotti sings gloriously while presenting an exceptionally endearing portrayal of Rodolfo in the role with which he is perhaps most closely identified. Pavarotti and his first wife, the former Adua Veroni, whom he married in 1961, were the parents of three daughters. The couple divorced in, in 2001, however, five years after the revelation of an affair between Pavarotti and his secretary, Nicoletta Mantovani. In 2003, Mantovani gave birth to a twin boy and girl, but only the later survived. Later that year, Pavarotti and Mantovani were married before 600 guests on the stage of the Teatro Comunale in Modena. The magnificence of Luciano Pavarotti's singing has secured an exalted position for him among the finest tenors of the 20th century. No one did more in our time to bring a new public to opera. The wave of the fluttering white handkerchief is missed within the theater, as well as in the wider world of those who have never set foot inside an opera house. On September 6th, 2007, Luciano Pavarotti passed away at age 71. Now let's turn to the documentary itself. Pavarotti, the film, looks into the man behind the music through never-before-seen footage and exclusive interviews with his family, as well as showcasing some of his greatest performances. The film's director, Ron Howard, has said, Pavarotti's life was replete with the highs and lows of great drama, and like any compelling character, he was also a man of considerable contradictions. His artistic ambition, propelled by his massive talent and his deep love for humanity, drove his career and the powerful bond with his audiences, but they also fueled his other life as a world philanthropist, and I'm intrigued by the way his emotional passion not only drove his music and his powerful bond with his audiences, but his gift of his other life as a philanthropist. 
I'm not sure there was a huge difference between the performer and the man, Howard has said. The people who knew him loved that spirit. It was almost boyish, and he never lost that fascination and appreciation for the world. At first glance, archetypal American film director Ron Howard does not seem the ideal candidate to make a documentary on Italy's international operatic sensation. The man with the voice from God, Luciano Pavarotti. Initial impressions, however, can be deceptive, and Howard turns out to be a natural choice to direct this excellent film, a warm, emotional, and completely involving one about the celebrated tenor. If nothing else, after a career that started as a child star on a hit TV show and came to include a raft of crowd-pleasing movies, if Howard does not understand the nature of mass popularity, no one does. And Pavarotti was celebrated like no tenor since Enrico Caruso, accounting for more than 100 million albums sold, including sales of the three tenors, the top-selling classical disc of all time. More than that, Howard has directed music documentaries before, most notably one about the Beatles, entitled Eight Days a Week, The Touring Years. And as a celebrity in his own right, um, Howard has the kind of clout that likely helped in getting access to the wide variety of on-screen voices. 53 new interviews in total. Um, and I think that is one of the documentary's strengths. These include the singer's first wife, Adua Varoni, and three adult daughters, Christina, Lorenza, and G Juliana, none of whom had talked on camera before. As well, his second wife, uh, Nicoletta Mantovani, whose relationship with the first family has not always been an amicable one. Also on camera are celebrated fellow musicians, including Lang Lang, Zubin Mehta, Placido Domingo, and uh, Jose Car Carreras, as well as Bono, one of the pop singers Pavarotti collaborated with late in his career. In one of the film's most memorable clips, the U2 frontman calls the singer with a mixture of admiration and resignation one of the great emotional arm wrestlers. Blessed with a thorough research team, Howard has also rounded up a range of fascinating performance footage from earlier in Pavarotti's career, some of which is quite startling. In fact, the director and his screenwriter, Mark Monroe, have chosen to start their documentary with a truly remarkable, previously unseen clip shot by flutist Andrea Griminelli in Brazil in 1995. It shows Pavarotti making what was in effect a pilgrimage to the ornate opera house in Manaus, a city surrounded by the jungles of the Amazon, breaking into a brief snatch of Neapolitan song just for himself, and perhaps to commune with the spirit of Caruso, who had sung there a year earlier. If Pavarotti the documentary tells you anything about the man, it's that 
that is what he was like. Boyish, impulsive, gen a genuine enthusiast who combined artistry and artlessness in a way that was difficult for any audience to resist. Though Pavarotti's father was himself an amateur tenor, he had a better voice, the son would insist. Pavarotti uh, himself started as a schoolteacher before the nature of his gift was recognized and his professional career began. Much is made of the tenor's first international success in 1963 when he was a last-minute substitute for Giuseppe di Stefano as Ridolfo in La Boheme at London's Covent Garden. And that, in the same year, uh, Pavarotti made the connection that cemented his career, teaming with the legendary soprano Joan Sutherland, a bel canto specialist whom he credits with teaching him the fine points of breath control. In interview segments often conducted by his second wife, Mantovani, the tenor is fascinating when he talks about his voice, which he calls the prima donna of my body. As Pavarotti's international career blossomed, his professional and personal lives inevitably diverged. Though the singer tried to stay connected to his hometown in Modena, by traveling with suitcases of his favorite foods from there. Among the film's strongest interviews, perhaps because of the unexpected insights they provide, are those with uh, three less well-known people. Uh, one, singer Madeleine Reni. Two, Pavarotti's personal assistant and later his mistress, uh, Mantovani. And three, the singer's fierce manager, Herbert Breslin, who delights in his reputation as, quote, one of the most hated people in the opera business, end quote. Though hardcore opera fans did not necessarily approve, Pavarotti increasingly took on stadium recitals in which his natural warmth and feeling for people managed to connect him to the most massive audiences. And I think that's perhaps what we most remember Pavarotti for, aside from the great music, is that connection um, he had with people, a very, very warm and gregarious personality that uh, always shines through, most especially um, by means of that incredibly wonderful smile. Um, this led to the third stage of the tenor's career, his collaboration with pop, pop icons such as Bono in uh, Concerts for Charity. Bono's description of how Pavarotti sweet-talked his housekeeper to gain access to him is uh, a particularly charming aspect of the film. Not surprisingly, Pavarotti, the, f the film, features numerous areas, and though Puccini's Nessun Dorma, a personal favorite, is sung a lot, the most moving segment we hear is Cavaradasi's wrenching final aria in the composer's Tosca, sung when the tenor himself was coming to grips with his own mortality. Indeed, the documentary itself is so involving that when Pavarotti dies, we take it as though we've lost a friend. I suppose if there is a criticism to be made in watching Ron Howard enlist an all-star cast of experts, industry luminaries, and celebrities to catalog Luciano 
Pavarotti's many, many achievements as a singer. It's easy to think that the filmmaker chose hagiography as his preferred storytelling format for this new documentary film. But in exploring a career distinguished by industry-changing benchmarks and a life driven by the opera star's irrepressible charisma, so irrepressible that even his ex-wife cheerfully forgives his many transgressions, Howard can be forgiven for showing his subject the same generosity of spirit that Pavarotti extended to the world through both his art and his personality. Much of the documentary is given over to the performer's transformative impact on the opera industry, as well as upon the people that he encountered professionally and personally during his more than 50-year career. In, in interviews with contemporaries like Placido Domingo, Howard underscores just how unique Pavarotti's voice was, that it seemed easy for the singer to sustain notes that few others could. But the filmmaker also showcases how her powerful powerhouse talent, like his, could also be painfully nervous before every performance. And what emerges from the concert footage is not just Pavarotti's exhilaration from moving crowds by the millions across the globe, but also a sense almost of relief. Though he was both physically imposing and a tremendously large personality, the recurrent theme of interviews with friends, family, and colleagues is just how disarming he was, how he would make the people he met feel special rather than the other way around, with both concert and private footage underscoring this in clip after clip. Howard also explores how Pavarotti changed the way that opera was sold and more br broadly revolutionized the industry as a whole to recognize the commercial power of putting these singers on the same level as pop and rock, rock artists. It was Herbert Breslin who sent him on tours and created opportunities for Pavarotti to become an international superstar, and then collab collaborated with rock promoter Harvey Goldsmith, who hired him for a 12-night gig, originally designed for Bruce Springsteen, of all people, that completely changed the way audiences consumed opera. And this eventually led to his three tenors performance with Domingo and uh, Jose Carreras, which reached more people than ever before and made him a household name. But even as he was performing to record audiences and exploring new form formats, both live and recorded, Pavarotti retained an impromptu bravado, a pure, unworried enjoyment of his experiences that suggests he was less interested in leveraging his success for personal gain than exploring what could be done, and more specifically, what hadn't yet been done. In one scene, former record executive Michael Kuhn recounts the time he was upset at Pavarotti for, for violating the terms of his contract by recording for uh, another record label, and as an explanation, the singer simply replied, Life's too short. Pavarotti understood the power he wielded as an international celebrity and utilized it when needed, but never to satisfy his ego or for his own edification. 
That said, Pavarotti's loves and his children dominate a healthy portion of the film's almost two-hour running time, and they add important shades of gray to its portrait of his talent and his charm. He was in many ways stereotypically gregarious, a performer on stage and off, but the consistent thread in these interviews, even when they turn critical of his philandering and infidelities, is just how earnest his affections were whether it was opera or fame or food or women, Pavarotti was a man who loved them all sincerely and wanted love in return. As a result, Howard's film is a love letter to the icon, but ultimately, Pavarotti the documentary is more of a celebration of the individual behind that facade and a reminder that, it, that it's as much his humanity as his talent that made Pavarotti such a great star. The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Welcome back to Broadway Happy Hour. I'm so glad you're all here with me tonight. Great. So, oh, this is fun. So, Mary Burke said, can we do a song from Spamalot? And this is the only song that I know from Spamalot, but I find it so funny. I thought we could do a little bit of humor now. So this song is known as The Diva's Lament. Um, in the books, it's called Whatever Happened to My Part. But it's very, very, very funny. Um, and the, you know, like on sheet music, there's always like the tempo marking at the top. And the tempo marking for Diva's Lament says mid-70s Barbara Streisand ballad, which I think is the funniest, most, I guess, indicative tempo that you could put for a song, right? So here's our mid-70s Barbara Streisand ballad from uh, Spamalot. It's very funny. It's humorous thing. Whatever happened to my part It was exciting at the start Now we're halfway through Act 2 And I've had nothing yet to do I've been off stage for far it's ages since I've had a song This is one unhappy diva The producers have deceived her There is nothing I can sing from my heart Whatever happened to my part I am sick of my career Always stuck in second gear Up to here with frustration and with fears I've no Grammy, no rewards. I've no Tony Awards. I'm constantly replaced by Britney Spears. Britney Spears. Whatever happened to my show? I was a hit, now I don't know. I'm with a bunch of British knights, prancing round in
Diva's Lament, and a diva it is. Great, hey, let's do a little bit of Little Shop. Kathy, Kathy McDevitt, as for uh, Suddenly Seymour. It's, it's, it's gonna be a little tricky for me to do this duet all by myself, so hopefully everyone at home is gonna be doing like the, the other parts with me. So Suddenly Seymour from Little Shop. Thanks for that request. Um, Garrett, a uh, Helen, a uh, Helen Garrett. That's Parker's mom, Helen in Boston. I've got people from Boston who tune in each week and I'm so glad that they do. Parker, who's a brilliant musician who I work with often. If you know Parker Burt, fabulous percussionist and drummer, 
And his parents watch from Boston, so Boston, yay! And they say, can we do some Chicago? All that jazz, I mean, of course, right? This is for you, Helen. Come on, babe, right on the the town. And all that jazz, I'm going rouge my knees and roll my stockings down. And all that jazz. Why'd you shoot him? 
thought he was leaving. Was he angry like a madman? Still, they said, Fred, move along. She knew that she was doing wrong. Then, describe it, he came toward me with a pistol from my bureau. Did you fight him like a tiger? He had strength and she had none. Yeah, we fought and fought like a gun. Oh, yes, so oh, yes, so oh, yes, we both, oh, yes, we both, oh, yes, we both, we both, the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun. Oh, yes, we both, we fought the gun, call the gun. Oh, yes, so oh, yes, so oh, yes, we both, oh, yes, we both, oh, yes, we both, we both, the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun. Oh, yes, we both, we fought the gun, call the gun. Understandable, understandable. Yes, it's perfectly understandable, comprehensible, comprehensible. Not a bit reprehensible. It's so defensible. How you feeling? Very frightened. Are you sorry? Are you kidding? What's your statement? All it says, don't let you two jump the track. I give my life to bring them back. Stay away from Chazalika and the man who played for fun. And what? That's the ball that came upon me when we both reached for the gun. Understandable, understandable. Yes, it's perfectly understandable, comprehensible, comprehensible. So this is Any Dream Will Do from Joseph. And this goes out to Laura Lisbeth, Alanis, and Alanis Cruz. Guess those are two people. Yay. So, Any Dream Will Do from Joseph. I close my eyes to back the curtain to see for certain what I thought I knew. Sleeping, any dream will do. 
gorgeous tune. Love, love, love Joseph. So this last song goes out to Diane Dupuis and to Tracy Bronstein, and this is For Good, Merci Beaucoup Tout le Monde uh, d'être uh, à l'écoute ce soir et passer du bon temps avec moi. So here we go. This is For Good from Wicked. Happy hour with me. 
That concludes this segment of Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Cote St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.